0: What is love? Some of you might have a 1990s dance hit by Hadaway in your head right now, which starts with the same question. It's a question that has many potential answers. If you type love into dictionary.com, it gives you 21 entries. Um, The first three I'll read out. um, A profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person. A feeling of warm personal attachment or deep affection, as for a parent, child or friend, sexual passion or desire. And there's some truth in all of them, but they're not the true definition of love. And sadly, the Hadaway song doesn't define it either. It's just him asking his girlfriend not to mess him about. I think it's fair to say that sinful humans all want to be loved, and will go to great lengths to get it. From the day we're born, we chase love. Babies of a certain age are so desperate for their parents' attention and nearness that they'll start crying if they're with anyone else. Teenagers desperately seek approval from their peers on social media by labouring to present a version of themselves which will get likes and followers. Adults flock to dating sites and apps in search of finding a romantic partner or even just another person for a loveless physical encounter. Now seeking out love is is not in itself sinful, but these behaviours show that fallen, sinful people are naturally more interested in receiving love than giving it. But today's passage contains the only definition of love that we as Christians should be interested in. There are other passages in the Bible which describe love, but this passage possibly gives us the most most concise and pure definition. And it's not just a definition, it's a definition combined with a command. Now sometimes a passage's main application for us takes a bit of getting to, a bit of exploration, but not here. The primary command of this passage is simple, we must love each other. That command appears at the beginning and the end of the passage. And also with some Bible passages, the application for us is different to the original audience. Again, not here. John is writing to a church in the era between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. Although we aren't the actual church that John was writing to, we are a church in between the resurrection and the second coming. So this letter is written as much to us as it was to the early church. We must love each other. When said like that, it might sound a bit top-down. But today, I want to explain how, if we understand what love is, loving one another will come naturally to us. We won't be able to stop loving one another. Today, I want to explain the difference between God's love and our love. So let's get into the passage. I want to talk to you about three aspects of love in this passage. Okay. Firstly, love divine. Secondly, love displayed. Thirdly, love overflowing. So, firstly, love divine. The passage opens with the command Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. When reading or hearing the word for, sometimes your brain skips over it. It's just a little link word. But it plays a vital part in the logic of this command. We probably all know that for is another word for because. So it's saying, because all love comes from God, we should cherish it and pursue it. And in verse 8, John goes further and says that God is love. That's a pretty huge statement. Let's think about the implications of that. Love is not just a characteristic of God in the same way you might think of God's omnipotence or omnipresence. Those are just byproducts of being God. No, love is part of the very fabric of what God is made of and what He's like. I wonder if it helps to take a metaphor from physics. With very few exceptions, all life on earth ultimately gets its energy from the sun, and the sun is pure energy. So it is with love. All love comes from God, and God is love. Okay, this sounds very neat theologically, but maybe you're thinking, then how do non-Christians love? Because they definitely do. There is love outside the Christian church, and sometimes non-Christians seem to love each other far better than Christians do. Although they have rejected God, they are still made in his image. And although this image has been defaced by the fall in Genesis, as it has with us, it's not destroyed. So they still have the capacity to love. It's in their spiritual DNA. So when a non-Christian shows love, there is a shadow but only a shadow of God in them. Even the most noble act of love, without God as its focus, is incomplete. And the fact that love in a non-Christian is only a shadow of God puts to bed a dangerous, and dangerous misinterpretation of this verse, that if you love, you can know God in the same way that a Christian does, excusing people of the need to believe in Jesus as their saviour. This interpretation also wrenches the verse totally out of context. John is clear elsewhere in the letter that the true child of God both believes in his son, Jesus Christ, and loves one another. This is also a truth plastered across the whole Bible, So to be clear, we cannot and must not let this seemingly inclusive verse dilute our belief in the need for faith in Jesus to gain salvation and a right relationship with God. If we start to believe that love alone could be enough, what might that do to our desire to share the gospel of Jesus with our non-Christian friends and family? What might it do to our faith in Jesus as our saviour? But if this is true, what then are we to make of verse 7 where it says anyone who loves is born of God and knows God? What we need to remember here is that John's definition of love is not the same as ours. It's not as broad as the 23 entries in dictionary.com. What he is saying is that Only those who show God's version of love are really born of Him and know Him. And we'll think about what God's love looks like shortly. Conversely, verse 8 goes on to say that if anyone does not love, he does not know God or she. And that includes people who declare with their tongues and minds that they accept Jesus as their Lord. If you call yourself a Christian and you don't love others, I don't just mean your family, but strangers, the poor, your Christian brothers and sisters, this verse is a hammer blow. You don't know God. Earlier in the letter, in chapter 3, John states that loveless people are not from God. That's verse 10. And worse, abide in death. Verse 14. Strong words. This letter is full of statements about how we know we are a Christian. And this is a statement about how we know we're not. Put another way, this passage is clear that it is impossible to enter into a relationship with God, who is love and the source of all love, and yet not be transformed into a loving person yourself. But be comforted about the order of, the, of those two. Entering into a relationship comes first, and then it is God who will transform you. And what does God's love actually look like? Well, the next few verses tell us. Secondly, a love displayed. In verses 9 and 10, John moves on to explain how God has displayed his love for us through the cross. He sent Jesus, a perfect and blameless lover of people, to die as an atoning sacrifice for all the sins of mankind. Just think about how much humans sin. And by sin, I mean turn away from God in their actions thoughts and speech. Even the Christian writers whose books we quote and we look up to, and the leaders who we look up to, they sin. John Piper, a sinner. John Calvin, a sinner. Greg Wilson, a sinner. Then times that by the estimated 108 billion people who have ever lived. It blows the mind. Now it's important just to make clear here that not all of those people's sins will be covered by the cross. Only those who accept that act of love and accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour will benefit from it. But the Bible is clear that even if everyone who ever lived did accept Jesus, that sacrifice would still be enough. I still can't get my head around the scale of it, the scale and volume of God's love shown on the cross. I don't think anyone ever will. And it's this astonishment at the enormity of God's love for us God will use that to transform us into loving people. And verse 10, hammers home the point of verse 7 and 8. This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If John had a caps lock key, I think he'd be slamming it on for the words, this and loved us. This is love. God loved us this verse makes crystal clear that there can be no explanation or definition of true love which does not start from God's love. We cannot begin to understand it by thinking about how we love God. Instead, love has to be seen as a prior act, something already done. Can I suggest this? In the form of the cross, God dropped a thermonuclear bomb of love on the earth. And it's only the radiation and fallout from that which enables us to love. I know it's not a perfect metaphor. God's love is not destructive or violent like a bomb. But I hope it gets the point across that love came first from God. And it is the aftershock of this act of love. Jesus' death on the cross which enables us to love. So love is divine, displayed on the cross, and thirdly, overflowing in us. Verse 11 says, dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to love one another. It's a repetition of sorts of verse 7, because God loved us, we ought to love each other. This is what we should be aiming for to be so full of astonishment and amazement of the love of God poured out on us that we can't help it overflowing to others. We can't help but passing it on. And if this happens, maybe the result will be that people of Chalton look at Redeemer and think, you know, I don't agree with what they believe, but there's something about the way they love each other and the way they love Chalton that I can't get my head around. Maybe there is something in what they believe. But what does this love look like? Well, we've learned that the ultimate act of love was on the cross. So let's look at the cross and learn from it. Firstly, the cross was an act. It was more than just a warm feeling God had towards the world to forgive all the sin that had ever been committed. It was a brutal, bloody, bloody, and drawn-out execution of an innocent man. So obviously innocent that the person who authorised it, Pontius Pilate, made a show of washing his hands to say, I want no responsibility for this. And Jesus wasn't just innocent in an earthly sense, having committed no crime. He was innocent in a cosmic sense. He had never sinned. Secondly, it was a sacrifice, God gave his only son, he put his son through this brutal execution. And as Jesus was also God, he put himself through it. Through unimaginable pain and suffering, and ultimately through death. Thirdly, it was for our good. It was so that we could be in relationship with God and gain entrance to eternal life. What a gift. I can't think of anything better you could do for someone. In fact, I feel like the word good is hopelessly inadequate to describe it, but it's how the phrase goes. And finally, and most powerfully, it was an act of forgiveness. For all the times we have turned away and will turn away from God in what we say, do, or even think, through Jesus' death, if we accept him as Lord, we are forgiven. So, the greatest act of love ever seen was about forgiveness. Now, of course, none of us are able to replicate that in anywhere near the scale of that. We can't sacrifice ourselves to pay for the sins of others. I'm not saying we need to jump in front of the 85 bus and say, I'm dying for your sins. That's already been done. But we can forgive people, we can forgive the wrongs people have done to us because we ourselves have been forgiven. And actually, it means we must forgive them. Aside from forgiveness, we can also show love through actions that are, firstly, actions that are sacrificial, that have a cost to us, and that are for the good of others. What might this look like? What can we be sacrificial with? Firstly, our time. Instead of a Friday evening in watching Netflix, how about going for a drink with a person who seems lonely? Instead of a lion on Sunday, how about coming to church to help set up? Instead of booking annual leave just for a holiday, how about using it to serve in some way? Secondly, we can love sacrificially with our resources. I'm not just talking about money here. It could also be possessions. But what if part of loving Cholton, like God loved us, looked like giving to Redeemer to help God's mission here? What if it looked like buying a weekly shop for the person who's just been made redundant? What if it looked like offering your spare room to a visitor? Thirdly, we can be sacrificial with our gifts, our skills. If we're good at baking, bake for missional community. If we're good at working with kids, help with Kids Club. Now, I do see a lot of genuine, sacrificial love in this church. This is not a rebuke. This is an encouragement. Everyone, I see people in this room do all the things above and more. But this exhortation to love each other here in one john should inspire us to think about how we could do more of it. But it won't come by simply trying harder. It will come by being continually amazed by God's love for you. Can I ask you... And I'm asking myself here as well, how often do you think about the cross? In your daily lives from Monday to Saturday, I know I'm guilty of not thinking about it much. But what if thinking about the cross more frequently could give you the shot in the arm of amazement that you need to love others more? But maybe you're still thinking, it's strange for John to be telling a church of Christians to love each other when he's also saying it's impossible to be a Christian and not love each other. the answer To answer this, let me take uh, just a little detour. For those of you who don't know, um, my wife Ruth and I are having twins in July, expecting twins in July. Very exciting. Supposing God appeared to us in the delivery room, after all the pain, the sweat, the screaming, possibly swearing, when we're looking... When we're looking at our newborn children for the first time, supposing he sidles up to us and says, and I'm not going to do a voice, Tim and Ruth, these twins are going to live to a ripe old age. They'll have happy, safe and successful lives. They'll live to 85. They'll give you plenty of smiles, happy memories, maybe grandchildren. And then supposing after hearing this, for the first time, they look hungry and it's time for Ruth to give them their feed, first feed. And suppose if I were then to say to Ruth, Ruth, don't worry, chill. God just told us it's going to be fine. These twins are going to live to 85. You don't need to worry about feeding them. God's told us they'll live to 85. Well, I don't think I'd be very popular. And if when they're learning to cross roads, Ruth might be teaching them to look left, look right. And then I say, Ruth, chill. God has told us. They're going to be fine. Even if they step out into the road, God will cause the cars to swerve out of the way or an angel will pick them up and lower them on the pavement. Again, I wouldn't be very popular. Why would I be totally wrong in saying this? God could do that if he chose. But God is going to use us as parents to see to it that those twins are fed, happy and safe and not run over. It is through us that he, his will for those twins, if that is his will, will be done. And it's the same thing here. God is using his word, this passage in 1 John, this command here, and the fact that we are sat here thinking about it, to help us to become who we were meant to be as Christians, to become radically loving people who know God and are born of God. And this isn't just a call to love Christians, it's a call to love whoever you find yourself placed with. We don't get to choose our work colleagues or our family, but we're called to love them just as God loved us. And the reward for doing this, look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us no we can't see God but this is the way you can experience God through loving other people and then his love is made complete in us another way to put this might be to say that when we love others God's love for us has reached its full effect in creating the same kind of love as his in us so I want you to be encouraged and inspired encouraged that Whenever you do a loving and sacrificial act for the good of another person, you're taking part in what John is urging in this passage. And as he says, God's love is made complete in you. But be inspired by God's love for you to carry on loving and to look for opportunities to love more. When you're struggling to love people, though, look at the cross Remember the mind-blowing love that God has poured out on you and pass it on. Don't love others because the person at the front told you to. Don't do it to meet a target. We could never meet a high enough target. If If you see loving others as a chore because you've been told to do it, it will exhaust you. No, love others because you can't keep hold of the love God has poured out on you on the cross then it will come from within you. Now maybe you're not a Christian here. Maybe this is the first time you've come to Redeemer or even any church. Can I ask you, is this kind of love something which attracts you? A kind of love from a God who is love and who says, whatever you've done, whoever you've hurt or let down, I love you. Or maybe your experience of earthly human love has left you hurt or broken. Maybe you've been hurt by someone who claimed to love you, but their actions told you that they were just in it for themselves. Maybe the people in your life who should have loved you, your parents, friends and family, fail to do that. And the reason they failed is that that their love was only an echo of what love really is. Do you want to receive love from the maker of love? Speak to myself or Greg, anyone who's been at the front, if that's you. So what is love? Well, according to this passage, it comes from God alone. When we type love into dictionary.com, we shouldn't see 21 entries, we should see a picture of the cross. And we should be so in awe of the love poured out on us that we can't keep hold of it, that it has to overflow into others around you. And when that happens, then we know that God is living in us. And what better way to remind ourselves of the love of the cross now but to celebrate it in the Lord's Supper, communion as he commanded us. By breaking the bread we remember Jesus' body broken for us, (laughs) gluten-free. By breaking this other bread, we remember that God's love was broken for us. By drinking the wine or the juice, we remember God's love, Jesus' love, spilled on us so that we can love others as he loved us. Now this is a meal for anyone who has accepted God's love for them displayed on the cross. Whether you're a member of Redeemer, have been coming here a while, or just visiting, if you trust in Jesus, this meal is for you. But if you haven't made that step, we love that you're here and you're welcome, but please just take this time to sit and think about what you've heard. We don't want you to make a statement of something you don't believe in. Equally, if you are a Christian but currently in an unreconciled state with another Christian brother or sister, please sit this one out. If you're not living in love with a fellow believer, it wouldn't be right for you to declare that you are living in God's love fully. Go away and repair the situation. The table will be here for you next week. We're going to sing in a moment, so during the first two songs, just come up. Take some bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and eat, remembering the love of God displayed through Jesus' death on the cross as you do. If you've never done this before, maybe this morning here is where you start. Maybe here is where you receive the amazing love God has poured out on you, and then start loving others in the same way. Let's pray.